Well, great, great worship. You can be seated. And uh, so good to see many of you uh, coming back to church and joining us. A lot of familiar and friendly faces. And to those of you who are still home, we love you, welcome you, and certainly respect your choice and, and want to welcome you right now. Thanks for joining us online. Uh, and then Cactus, we love you. Glad that you're with us for the word right now. Northridge, love you as well. And then chapel, I uh, was in the chapel this week doing a memorial service for a dear saint who went home, and not only was that a special time, but as I was in that room, if you've never had a chance to check out our chapel here on the uh, Shea campus, it's a really special room. Uh, when we built it five or six years ago, we built it as one of the places that, that would be very sacred uh, for us, doing funerals and weddings and worship and sacraments and, and such, and uh, I just love being in there. I, I feel very close to the Lord <clears throat> when I'm in that space, uh, as some of you have spaces like that. So welcome to all of you. We are beginning a new series today called The Questions God Answers. The Questions God Answers. And before I pray, I wanna spend a few minutes introducing this series to you and letting you know why it is so important for you and me today. So here we go. Any of us who have ever had children or even been around children know that they love to ask near impossible to answer questions, right? Children just love to do that. So they ask things like this, Daddy, why doesn't Tarzan have a beard when he lives in the jungle without a razor? <laughs> right? Or they, they say, Mommy, why does Daddy press harder on the remote control when we all know the batteries are dead? Or how about this one, Daddy, why is it that people say they slept like a baby when our baby doesn't sleep more than two hours? Or most profound, I like this one, um, why does Goofy stand on two legs and Pluto on all fours when they're both dogs? Right. See, some of you don't even laugh at that, but children do. <laughs> and they ask questions that go on and on like this. Kids have the uncanny ability to ask all kinds of why questions, questions that seem to come out of nowhere, and at least with our limited knowledge, even as adults. We have trouble answering them, at least giving the kids a satisfactory answer. And though as you and I grow into adulthood, we stop asking questions about Tarzan and remote controls and funny sayings and cartoon characters, when you look closely at your life and mine, we tend to ask similar type of questions to God. Questions that are near impossible to answer, questions that stretch our finite adult minds and almost surely will not be answered this side of heaven. So we ask things of God like this, why God do you allow bad things to happen to good people, even your people? Why am I still single, God, or single again? After all these years of waiting, what are you up to? Or even more sobering, God, why did you allow my dad to die so early or one of my children to be taken away from me? Or how about this one? Uh, why doesn't God simply reveal himself to everybody physically and clearly, thus settling the question of whether he exists or not? It would silence all the atheists. Or how about my favorite? If God is absolutely perfect and originally created a perfect world, how could things have gotten so wrong? And if the answer is free will, then God, you must have at least known that we would use it so badly, even allowed it or ordained it. How does that work? 
And you see so many more questions. Think about it. You and I as adults have stopped asking near impossible to answer questions about Tarzan and Goofy to our parents. But what we've now done is simply transferred our very difficult questions to God. And I want to be clear, these are good and fine questions for you and me to ask. They are thoughtful and meaningful questions about the nature of God and the realities of life, and we should continue to ask them and work through them. We talk about them regularly around here, especially among our our, our pastoral staff and our leadership here. We spar over the answers to them and debate them. It's a good thing to do. But I can categorically tell you folks that after 2,000 years of theological inquiry complete with some of the best and brightest theological and philosophical minds striving to find answers to these questions and more, at best, you're going to find a semi-satisfactory answer, and quite frankly, you're going to find an answer that's not completely satisfying to your inquiring mind and your thirsty soul. I've been doing this for a long time. So keep asking the questions we could. But like a kid who still wonders why Tarzan always has a clean face or why Goofy walked on two legs and Pluto didn't, we're still left, you and I, with plenty of wonderment and at times even frustration and angst over the questions that we ask of God. And yet here is what many of us miss in the face of asking all these near impossible to answer questions. And that is that simultaneously as we are asking God the tough questions, there are plenty of other thoughtful and meaningful questions that God has chosen to answer and answer them rather clearly. And the answers are mind-blowing and life-changing. It's true. Many people today get all hung up on asking God tough questions, questions that are good and legitimate, as we've noted, but almost near impossible to answer given our finite minds, and we fail to realize that there are plenty of rich and deep questions that God has chosen to answer. And so what we are going to do this fall here at SBC is spend some time drilling down on the questions that God answers. Seven questions, very thoughtful and meaningful questions that God in his word has chosen to answer. Larry Crabb, who's a friend of ours as a church and a wonderful writer, calls these the seven questions of spiritual theology because they're the type of questions that can truly revolutionize your spiritual walk with God, this side of heaven, and even your view of the world and things and people around you. And so here's a roadmap of where we're going in this series, the things that we're going to ask and answer. Who is God? What is God up to? Who are we? What's gone wrong with us in this world? What has God done about what's gone wrong? How is God's spirit moving today amidst all the crud and stuff going on? And how can we join the spirit's movement? We're going to take a team approach to this series. I'm going to be doing five of them as your senior pastor, but we're going to bring Rustin and Kevin in on two different weeks to also help us with these questions. And all I can tell you is, is I'm very excited about this series. I think it could be an amazing time. In fact, I hope it will for you and your spiritual life. And the only caveat I'm going to give you is that this is going to be a rather deep series. 
And so if you like fluffy stuff, if you like, you know, five stories in a scripture when it comes to a sermon, then this isn't going to be your series. But if you have a spiritual thirst for God on a deep level and to understand what the Bible says about some of the most meaningful questions that we can and should ask this side of heaven, and you're willing to do a deep dive into them, then you're gonna love the next two months here at your church. And it might even be a good time to invite a friend who is inquiring or seeking as well. So that's what we're doing. Uh, pray for us, pray for me, as I'm right now going to pray for you. Why don't you guys bow with me and let's pray. Father, um, each person here in a cactus, Northridge, chapel, and, and certainly all those watching or with us online, uh, Lord, we come as one congregation before you because at the very, very least, we want to know you. We want to follow you. We want to find our satisfaction and sufficiency in you. And, and Lord, we want more and more of you. And so God, I pray that as we enter into a journey over the next two months here at our church that I think has the, the power and, and the potential to revolutionize our lives when it comes to how we relate to you and love you and seek you and know you and even see the world around us, God. Would you bless us with the movement and the wisdom of your spirit? May we understand your word rightly. May we not shy away from difficult subjects here, Father, but to add clarity to these all-important questions that people have been asking for years and that you do give answers to. That's my prayer. Empower us and bless us by your Holy Spirit. Now I pray, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the first question that you and I can find a satisfactory answer to is, who is God? Who is God? So let me throw it back on you right now. <laughs> if you were at work this week or online with somebody and they asked you to give a good one sentence biblical description of God, what would you say? Rich, what would you say? <laughs> if you had to somehow define and describe what Martin Luther, the great reformer, once called the inside of God, where you peel back the onion and look inside at the core of who God is, what would you say, what statement would you give? Here's a compilation of what I believe the Bible says and what I've heard many spiritual giants over the years affirm. This would be my answer to this. And it's a mouthful, I'll warn you. But one sentence, this is it. God is an uncreated, eternal, supreme and perfect being who exists as a self-sufficient trinity. Let me repeat that. God is an uncreated, eternal, supreme and perfect being who exists as a self-sufficient trinity. Now, I know that this is a mouthful. We're trying to define and describe God, not only using the confines of human language, but also doing it in one sentence. But I would submit to you that this is a really good starting place. And don't miss that we are saying two key things about who God is right out of the chute here. This is really important. The first thing we're saying in the first half of that statement about God is that his attributes, his defining characteristics, you're going to love this, are something that none of us are. Did you pick up on that? As soon as you go to define who God is, you start using language that is like the opposite of you. Many people fail to realize that. 
they fail to realize that as they go to describe God, they use words like uncreated, eternal, supreme, and perfect. And my simple question is, any of you want to claim that for yourself? (laughs) Probably not. This is why the Bible calls God holy. We sang that, that hymn earlier, at least in Shea here, holy, holy, holy. Again, many Christians don't even know what that word means. The word holy means set apart, totally other, different than us. That's why we call God holy. And obviously we want and need God to be this way, for we wouldn't want a God, think about it, that's created, finite, less than supreme, and imperfect. We got enough of that. That's us all throughout the week, right? We want God to be God. And this is why as well, the Bible describes God as transcendent, meaning above and beyond us because he's unlike anyone or anything that we could ever know on a human level. He is God. Don't ever forget this, uncreated, eternal, supreme, and perfect. And you and I, when we're thinking rightly, are glad that he is that way. But then, notice that there is a second part in our description of God here. And don't miss this. If the first part makes you feel as it should, like God is rather distant from us, because he is, (laughs) He's, he's wholly other than us. If the first part makes you feel that way, this second part in our description of God brings him very close to us. Because the second thing that we said in our definition of God here is that he exists as a self-sufficient trinity. A self-sufficient trinity. And you and I are going to see how and why this is so practical and powerful to our souls in just a little bit. But before we get to the practical implications of God being triune in nature, I want to first establish that this is indeed who he is. Because I got to tell you, a lot of people, even a lot of Christians that I rub shoulders with in our modern world are very hazy about this idea of God being a trinity and and the ability to explain it intelligently to somebody around them. And even worse, they, they certainly can't show someone how it's true from the Bible. And so I want to spend a few minutes doing that. And the first thing that you need to know, and this is very important, is that in ages past, nobody sat around and simply invented this concept of God being a trinity. In fact, it was the opposite. No one saw it coming, and people actually fought it for a rather long time. The Greeks certainly didn't see God this way as a trinity. Neither did the Romans or the Egyptians or the Assyrians or those in the Far East. Not even the Jews in the Old Testament saw God as a trinity, even though, as we're going to see in a minute, there are hints to this contained in the Old Testament. And even Jesus' followers in the first century didn't go looking for this. I can promise you, when they first saw Jesus, they didn't say, hey, hey, there's a second person of the Trinity. They, they, They didn't see Jesus that way when they first started to understand him. So this idea of a trinity was was not something that anybody thought up or made up. So you go, well, where did it come from? You're going to love this. This reality of God being a self-sufficient trinity was and is understood only as a result of an honest, plain reading of the Bible itself. 
Uh, let me repeat that, because again, people, some people say, well, you know, they made up the Trinity. No, actually we didn't. <laughs> it, it only came as the Bible was completed, 66 books spanning a 1500 year period of time from all different authors. Now one book that's inspired by God and tells us about him, Daryl did a great message on this a few weeks ago. And, and when you read this book cover to cover with an open mind, and an open understanding with the question, who is God? You're gonna walk away with this Trinitarian understanding of God. Let me show you what I mean. As you read the Bible, when it comes to God's essence, his intrinsic nature, one of the first things you will begin to understand right out of the shoot in the Old Testament is that God is one. In other words, there's only one God. Man, the, the Old Testament hammers us home like there's no tomorrow. So Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is, say this word with me, one. And this is just the start. <laughs> I love this passage here in, in Exodus 20 verse 3. This is the, the beginning of the list of the big ten, the ten commandments. And some of you know this, but the very, very first commandment, the most important thing God wanted Israel to know was this, you shall have no other gods before me. <laughs> so we have seen that there's this one and, and only God who's uncreated, eternal, supreme, and perfect, and we could add things like unchanging, all-knowing, everywhere present. The Bible makes very clear is one God. Theologians call this monotheism as opposed to polytheism, which are religions that believe in multiple gods, and it's a hallmark trait of God's core essence. He is one in essence. But as you then continue to read and look closer in the Bible, even in the Old Testament, you begin to see hints that there might be more to God than meets the eye. Again, this is God. He's rather complex. There might be more to his personhood. I mentioned the word essence earlier. Essence simply means an intrinsic nature. It's the intrinsic nature of God. But when you start to look at God's personhood, which is how he functions within himself and how he functions even toward this creation he made, you realize that there's more than his essence implies. And you even see hints of this very early on in the Bible. Let me show you. In the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, many of you know this verse, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Fascinating, in the first four words, in the beginning, God. That word God in the original Hebrew is the Hebrew word Elohim. What's interesting about Elohim is, it, is that it's the Hebrew plural for God. So instead of using the singular for God, the writer of Genesis used the plural for God. Hang on to that for a second. Because then 26 verses later, when it comes to creating humankind, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Well, wait a second. This is the Old Testament. There's only one God. But now you're using the plural again to describe God. 
Uh, for thousands of years, the, the Hebrews, the great Jewish scholars, uh, responded to this by saying, well, it's literary license. It's, it's a poetic thing going on here. In other words, they, they use the plural to make God look bigger, right? And so there's just simply poetic license going on here. It's not really saying that there's multiple gods. But as you and I both know, hindsight is always 2020. <laughs> and so when you get to the New Testament, now some of the pieces start to fall into place and you go, well, maybe there's more to that hint than meets the eye. Because in the New Testament, again, when you engage it with a thorough reading of all that it says about God, you find that God, now don't miss this, is defined and described as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. I'm going to show you the evidence right now that if you do a plain reading of Scripture, you will see God defined and described as our Father, and then you're going to see him defined and described as the Son, even with a name, Jesus, and then you're going to see him defined and described as the Holy Spirit. And so in Galatians 1, verse 1, let's just get this one out of the way because most people don't argue with this. God is Father. It says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. And this is all over the New Testament. Jesus referred to God as his Father. The epistles call God the Father. It's clear God is Father. But then simultaneously, God is referred to as the Son and even with a name, Jesus Again, it's really clear. Some offshoots of Christianity try to argue the opposite, but very, very weak ground that they stand on. John 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And at this point you're wondering, well, who's this Word? Skip down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh, human, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. So obviously he's talking about Jesus here. So you got the Son, who is the Word, the eternal Word, and the Word is or was God. And again, this is all over the New Testament. The epistles from Colossians to Hebrews would directly refer to Jesus as God. Thomas, one of Jesus' famous initial followers, when he saw Jesus in his post-resurrected state, said, my Lord and my God, he referred to Jesus as God. Even Jesus himself used an Old Testament name for God in John 8, 58 to refer to himself. Uh, when it was said to, to Moses, who is it that's sending me? When I say to Pharaoh, he, he says, God said, tell them that I am is sending you. God referred to himself as I am. And Jesus says in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. It's clear, it's really clear. The, the Son is God. So let's move on. The Father is referred to as God. The Son is referred to as God. But then not stopping there, there's a third person in the New Testament referred to as God. And you guessed it, it's the Spirit. Look at Acts chapter five, verses three and four. There's that famous scene where Ananias and Sapphira have lied to the apostles about their giving. And it says, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? For you have not lied to man, but to God. Whoa. So again, let this sink in. Ananias and Phyrus would argue, no, we just lied to you guys. But he says, nah, God's watching, God's involved in this, and you actually lied to the Spirit who is God. 
And again, this is just the beginning. The New Testament ascribes to the Holy Spirit the essential attributes of God. The Spirit is described as all-knowing, everywhere present, unchanging, the agent of creation. These are all things that are associated with God. The Spirit is referred to as a unique person, as well as the author of truth and one who now lives in and inhabits believers. It's clear. The Spirit is God. So add it all up, folks. You got the Old Testament with its overt emphasis on monotheism, even referring to polytheism as the gravest of sins. It's the very first commandment. There's only one God. But then even in the Old Testament, there are hints that though God is one in essence, that there might be more to his personhood than initially thought. And then comes along the New Testament and it explodes with an understanding of God that begins to blow our minds, Father, Son, and Spirit. And again, this is where things do get a little bit dicey. As theologians very 2,000 years ago started to, to, to read and understand the revealed Word of God and had to make sense of our understanding of God here, it took a couple of centuries of arguing and debating and sparring back and forth for them to finally come up with an understanding of God that you and I now have today that, that would look like this. And I love this. When people ask me, who is God? How do you explain the Trinity? This is it. I'll say God is one in essence. He's one in nature. But he's three in person. He's three in, in, in functional personhood. One in essence, three in person. And, and, and again, I might lose some of you right now with what I'm about to say, but, but I want to be really clear because we, we need to understand this. We aren't saying here that there are three gods. Please don't ever make that mistake. That would be polytheism and the Bible rejects this. There's only one God, but he exists in three persons. We further aren't saying that these are simply manifestations or modes of God. This was one of the great heresies a couple thousand years ago when people started to understand this. They said, well, maybe God just appears like a father or appears like a son or appears like a spirit, but, but isn't really that way. It's kind of like an animation, to use our words today. No, that doesn't do justice to the biblical concept of God here. He, he really is three distinct persons of the one true God. And watch this. We're not even saying that he's one-third father, one-third son, and one-third spirit. No, we're saying that he's 100% father. You'll see why that's important in a minute. 100% son. 100% spirit. Each of them are fully and 100% God. And there's only one God. And it's right at this point, if you're tracking with me, where you go, and I'm with you, gang. That doesn't seem to make sense. How can you have one and then say there's three and those three are each in their own way 100% the one? <laughs> I mean, that doesn't make sense, Jamie. And what's the answer to that? No, it really doesn't. <laughs> but that is how God lays himself out in the scriptures. At the end of the day, though we can explain the Trinity, here's what you need to know. At the end of the day, it is a mystery. 
At the end of the day, we are dealing with the Godhead. And we're dealing with things that are so deep and rich that our, I love how Reinhold Niebuhr said it years ago. He said it this way. He said, when the finite looks into the infinite, he gets dizzy. Are you dizzy yet? And it's true. When you start to look in to some of these, what the Old Testament calls the secret things of God, you just go, whoa, I, I, I can't really get my head and heart completely around it. I, I love how Martin Luther once put it. This has helped me a lot over the years because I, I tend to just go with how Luther says this. Martin Luther was one of the great reformers, the founder of Lutheranism, and he said this about the Trinity. I think we need to back up just a little bit so these guys can see it. Uh, there we go. He, he said, I believe and confess that there is one eternal God and at the same time, three distinct persons, even though I cannot fathom and comprehend this. Why? For Holy Scripture, which is God's word, says so, and I abide by what it says. Nothing but faith can comprehend this. There it is, gang. I think in a nutshell, that's it. The only reason I believe that God is a self-sufficient trinity is because that's how this book describes him to me and defines him for me. And I trust this book. If I didn't, I would be lost. And so my understanding of God is a biblical understanding of God. At the end of the day, it's a Trinitarian understanding of God. And again, there have been numerous illustrations that people have come up with over the years to try to help people get their heads and hearts around this. <laughs> and again, many of you have heard these illustrations. I'll put a few of them on the board here. They said, well, God is kind of like H2O. He's like water that comes in a liquid form and in a gas form and in an ice form. So there you have it, three in one substance. The early church said, no, God's kind of like a tree that, that has roots and has a trunk and has branches that bear fruit, but it's one tree. And then others have said, no, God's kind of like a man. A man can function simultaneously fully as a father, fully as a son, fully the hus as a husband, but it's the same man. And again, these are great illustrations. They're good illustrations. The only caution that I would give you, because they do help us understand how three can be one. The only caution I would give you is that when you think very richly and philosophically about them, if you take them too far, they all fall apart and can lead to heresy. <laughs> Because they, most of them lead to what we call modalism, which is basically saying that, 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 that God just exists in three different parts. When you add them all up, it's God, but each part is not completely 100% God. And that's the mystery of the Trinity. And, and so the illustrations are helpful. But at the end of the day, I, I'm still left with a wonderful, we'll see as we wrap up here in just a second, you're gonna see how wonderful this really is, understanding of God, but it is mystery. Again, one of my favorite passages in the New Testament is when Paul the Apostle was ruminating on the Godhead in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And at that point, he's ruminating on this idea of election and free will and God's sovereignty and all of that. Look at how he wraps up this section. This is kind of where I get to. He says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unfathomable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And that's kind of where I'm left with when I try to understand the Trinity. And if in your mind you're swimming right now, and again, mine is when I try to understand things like this, 
I want to wrap up today with the few minutes that we have remaining, sharing with you your ace in the hole. You're going to like this. Because as I said earlier, though the Trinity might be an incomprehensible mystery, at the same time, it's an eminently practical and workable and life-giving understanding of God. I said to you earlier that if you just understand God, as so many have over the years, as, as an eternal, unchanging, you know, good, uh, completely supreme and powerful deity, um, he's going to feel awfully distant. Because all the words you just used to describe God there are everything you're not. <laughs> and though we like to think opposites attract, I don't think that's what we mean by that statement. And so when we understand God as a self-sufficient trinity, I'm here to tell you right now, it pulls you in. It explodes your understanding and quite frankly, your relatability to God. I wanna show you what I mean. In the few moments we have remaining, I wanna note two things that an understanding of God as a trinity does for our lives. One greatly affects our relationship with him and the other, our relationships with each other. You ready for this? Here's the first thing. The Trinity allows us to know and trust God richly and fully. Some of you believe in God here today. You even believe in his son, Jesus. You're saved, you're gonna get into heaven. But if you and I were having a cup of coffee and you were very honest with me about your spiritual life, you would tell me, Jamie, it's just blasé on its best day. I, I don't feel like I really know him. I don't feel very close to him. And that would be an honest thing to say. I'm here to tell you today that one of the missing ingredients probably is for you is this idea of relating to God in a Trinitarian fashion. Let me explain. And I'm going to use a human illustration right now that I think will help you understand this. How many of you have ever, ever entered into an intimate relationship with somebody, say a marriage or a dating relationship or one of your kids or even a really good friend, and over time that person has changed or you, you found out things about them that you didn't know at first? Raise your hand if you've ever had that experience. Uh, probably most of us have. Sadly, um, many people who share that experience with me don't share it positively. <laughs> so they come to me and say, you know, the, the gal that I married 20 years ago or the guy that I married 20 years ago, they are not the same person that I saw at the altar there. They're different. And they don't mean that positively. Or they might say that about one of their kids. You know, the kid used to be so good. And now there's a side to him that's like, eh. You know, and, and obviously they're saying the kid is, has changed or they've discovered new things about their kid over the years. Or maybe a friend is that way. Some of us, however, have had really positive experiences with that. I've been married 32 years to my wife, Kim. I'm more in love with her now than I ever have been. I hope she doesn't leave me because I love this woman like there's no tomorrow. And she knows it. When I married Kim, I married her because there was a couple of core aspects that I loved about this woman. In addition to being in love with Jesus and being a sold out follower of Jesus, the two things I loved about Kim, and those of you who know her know this, is that she is a nurturer slash lover. She's just a, a beautiful nurture, nurturing type of person and she's eminently joyful. So the two things I'm not, <laughs> I just loved about this woman. 
And sure enough, as we started having kids and other things, I just, I would say my wife is an amazing nurturer. She's an amazing lover of people and she's very joyful. But over the years, as I've done a deep dive into her soul, I've seen other things about her that I didn't see coming. One of the things my wife is, and I I don't mean this to denigrate my earlier view of her, but as I've grown, I've seen her as incredibly sharp and industrious and amazing at commerce and and business. And I didn't see that coming. When we first got married, I said, hey, I'll do the money. I'm really good at that stuff and da-da-da-da. And this is a true story about, oh, I've probably six, seven years into our marriage. We, we had three young kids, and, and I was not making much money at all in the ministry. Most of us don't, and, and, and yet we were getting by in a very small house and three kids. And, and Kim started a home business. Uh, now home businesses are things like essential oils and things like that. Back then, a home business, this was based on scrapbooking. It was a business called Creative Memories. Some of you might remember it. And she would throw these Amway-type parties, you know, and she'd have her girlfriends over, and she'd sell them little scrapbooks and materials. And, and I'd look at, you know, the hall for the night and go, hey, this ain't very much money, honey, you know? It's just, I mean, and, and, and I never really bothered her about it. And, and about a year or two after, uh, one day I was doing the money, and I, I said to her when I was doing my budget, I said, you know, we're just, we're not doing great. I, I said, I, I love the ministry, but... Our cars are old, they're rusting, we're in Detroit, and, and I said, uh, we really need a new car, but I don't even think I could qualify for a loan because of my mortgage. And uh, she said, well, why don't we just go out and buy a good used car? And I said, honey, you're not listening, I don't have the money for it. And I kid you not, she said, I have some money. And of course, my condescending personality came out, and I said, well, that's good, honey, but I doubt it's enough money to buy a car. And she said, how much you need? And this, again, is back in the early 90s. And I said, well, to buy a good used car for us, I'd need at least $5,000. She said, I got that. I said, what? You have $5,000? She goes, no, I actually have $6,000. You have $6,000? I go, where did you get $6,000? And she goes, from my home business. And I go, why didn't you tell me? She said, because you didn't ask. And I said, you've been sitting on $6,000? She said, yeah, and I said, let's go buy a car. She said, let's go buy a car. And we did. We went out and bought a car, the first non-rusty car I ever owned. That woman just grew in my estimation. And ever since then, I realized there's a side to her that I never saw. I've seen other sides since then. She's very deep. And I don't think she'd mind me saying this. I'm almost going to... She's very troubled in her spirit in a good way. There's pain in my wife's soul. From her childhood, from her dashed dreams, she's let me into those things. But God is in that pain and he's used that pain and there's a depth to her spirit and to how she thinks about God and others that goes beyond her mere joy, her mere industry. She's a deep and rich woman. I just, I love her more than I ever could. So I've gone from seeing her as a lover and joyful nurturer to someone very industrious and sharp to a deep, if not troubled, woman whom God lives in powerfully. And my point is, is that I've seen sides to Kim as I've grown with her that have just made me fall in love with her. I've had the opposite experience as some of you when it comes to that kind of relationality. Here's my point in telling you that entire story. Could it be that God as a trinity, wants us to function the same way with him. 
I feel bad for people who come from religions in which they say, well, God is just this way. I'm not here to pick on other religions, but many of you know what those are. Many monotheistic religions, or even polytheistic religions who say, God is this way and you will pray five times a day in this way, or you will do these road activities in this way, and, and that's it, that's how you know him. Christianity is not that way at all. I taught you this three years ago, and I'm just going to wet your whistle again. If you, if you want to get it, you go to 2017 on our website, on our archives, and there's a series on Get God, Get Real that I did. I called the series Get It. And in the very first one on Get God, I laid out some ways that we relate to God within the Trinity. So you can get more than just this quick outline at that sermon if you want to. I suggested to you that day that as a father, we relate to God as the sovereign sender. He is sovereign, completely in control, just like you would think a good father is. And he loves you. And there's not one aspect of your life that he does not have control over. Not a sparrow falls to the ground outside of his will, as Jesus said. Every hair on your head is numbered. And that's what God, that's who God is. And he's a sender because he sent Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, the Son, is your rugged redeemer. Rugged because you can confess every single sin to him and he can take it. He died and shed his blood to forgive you of every single thing, watch this, that you have done, that you're doing right now, and that you will do for the rest of your life. Because God knows what you're going to do. And he's decided to send his son as God to die for you. He's your rugged redeemer. He's your friend. And then the Holy Spirit is your empowering enlightener meaning he is the power base for your Christianity. When you feel weak, you just say, Holy Spirit, ignite me. And he's the enlightener. He gives you insight into things that you are dense on right now. You see, God explodes when you start to understand him as a trinity. Like me loving my wife for 32 years and having these insights into her character and her personhood that make me fall in love with her more and more. Understand, God is that way. But you need to see him. Understand him as a Trinitarian, as a self-sufficient trinity. Because when you do, you start to understand him as father and experiencing him as son and then experience him as Holy Spirit. Again, not three parts to God because they're all God as one God. But it truly revolutionizes your walk with him. And then more quickly, because we're out of time and we have an elder fund to do today, the trinity reveals to us what relationality and community are all about. Uh, very quickly here, I want to explain one term that I haven't explained yet today that, 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 that many of you are still hazy on because I, I haven't explained it. If, if you notice in my definition of God, I've been calling him a self-sufficient trinity. Have you noticed that? The reason is, and this is really important to our theology, is that God existed before any of us. Amen? And God has existed as God for all of eternity. He's eternal. It's mind-blowing to try to think about that way, but there's no beginning to God. There's no end to God. But now watch this. As God, he has existed as a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, eternally. He didn't make up the trinity just to please us. <laughs> he is a trinity. And the reason I say self-sufficient is that God never needed us. He created us because he loves us. He made us because through our lives submitted to him, we can bring glory to him, and that's a good thing. But he is self-sufficient without us. That's really important to know because God doesn't need anything. Now watch this. 
But as a self-sufficient essence, he has a community within himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. In other words, God lives eternally as a complete and sufficient and satisfied community with the Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Spirit, the Spirit loving the Father for all of eternity. And the reason that's important is that then when he created you and me, he created us to be people who would now engage with each other in Trinitarian community. You're saying, like, how? Well, again, it's for other sermons. It's for other messages because we're out of time. But let me watch your whistle with a couple of things that might be important right now going on in your life. One of the things the Trinity is, and I just love this idea of the Trinity, is that they are unity amidst diversity, right? Because you have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all with very distinct persons, all with very distinct roles, and yet they are all completely equal and unified. Let me ask you a question. Could that say anything to marriage today? Could that say anything to church today? We're coming up on an election, and you might be, meet some people who don't vote like you do, or you might meet some people who don't have a view like you do, and yet they believe in Jesus like you do. And God wants you to exist in Trinitarian community with them, that in the diversity that you have, there's unity. Or how about the racial divide that we have in our country right now? Could unity amidst diversity, Trinitarian theology, speak into that? Absolutely. It speaks into every area of our life. Another thought when it comes to the Trinity is this idea of being able to submit to somebody and still remain equal with them. Jesus over and over again said, everything the Father says, I do. The Spirit, Jesus says, only comes to do what Jesus says to do. So you have this submitting thing going on in the Trinity, and yet they're all equal. Some of you hate submitting. I ain't submitting to my boss, and I'm not going to submit to my spouse, and I'm not going to submit to them elders at the church, and, and I'm not doing what our government officials say. And I mean, you're just like one big massive rebellion. <laughs> and one of the reasons you're that way is that you're insecure, and you feel that if you submit, it makes you less than a person. One of the reasons I can submit to the elders of this church, one of the reasons I can submit to the authorities around me is because I'm under no illusion that through submitting it makes me any less equal to them. I'm completely equal to them, and I know that. Why? Because God, who is a trinity, has said so. And the Father can ask the Son to submit while remaining equal. The Spirit can submit to the Son while remaining equal. You and I can do that today. It adds security to our relationships. And that's just two examples. This idea of Trinitarian uh, theology can revolutionize the way we see church and community. There's a lot there for us. So at the end of the day, who is God? <laughs> well, I can tell you this. God is an absolutely eternal and powerful, supreme, unchanging, perfect being who loves you and is able to handle anything that comes your way in life. He's also a self-sufficient trinity who doesn't need creation but decided to make creation and decided even to redeem creation. And he's your father. He's your redeemer. He's your empowerer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And aren't you glad that he is? Let's pray. Father, 
I thank you that your word and only your word could have the clarity to help us understand who you are. And certainly, Lord, we've not answered anything. We've ended up in mystery along the way today, and there's still lots of questions we have. But Lord, we've set a foundation here today in understanding who you are in our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that all of us would be leaning strongly on Jesus, our Redeemer. I pray that we would be obeying the inner voice of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And I pray, Father, that we would be trusting you with all the ups and downs of our lives. And we thank you, God, that you aren't like us. We thank you that you're able to handle anything in our lives as we lean and rest on you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.